Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 3rd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, multiple state agencies ask for more funding this year. The state is sitting on a $600 million revenue surplus. Then, the candidates for Secretary of State share their plans for office. Plus, a look back on how the National Endowment of the Arts and Humanities has affected Mississippi over nearly 60 years. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State lawmakers are trying to plan their budgets for the 2024 legislative session. Several state agencies have requested a large increase in their funding. This year, the legislature has a budget surplus of roughly $600 million, but the future of those extra funds isn't certain. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. He's leading this year's meeting of the Joint Legislative Budget Committee. He says lawmakers are still considering what to do with that money. Each agency will be on its own merit, of course. You know, it's not it's not like we're going to divide the budget surplus by X. Each agency will have to defend its its budget request and its necessities. I think you saw that in the questions from the House and the Senate. There's no grand plan just to divide everything up and you go to the next year. And so it's more of, I guess, letting them have their hearing and then deciding on merit, as you said, from that point? That's correct. Do you think that some of the agencies and and relevant services that they provide, is there maybe, you know, a way to prioritize those? I know it's early on in y'all's process. Well, this is a reason we have hearings, um, is to get what their priorities are. And this will be followed, of course, by Senate and House hearings as well, to go further into the budget. And that's done every year. This is a start, I think, but you, you'll hear more as we go along. I, I don't think those hearings are definitive necessarily, but I, I think you saw us ask the ones that are, have federal court orders uh, before them. Certainly those would be ones that we want to talk to and see where they're progressing to get out from under federal control. So you'll, you'll see some of that. I don't, I don't know that this is a def- definitive hearing. I think this is one in which we question very closely, as you could tell, what they're doing and what their prospects are for the next year and the next four years. And something I was hoping you could maybe clear up for me, my editor, Michael Guidry, who spoke to you, I think a little over a month ago, um, he was mentioning that 
the the elbow process used to be a little more of agencies coming and making these budget requests as needed. And he said that you made a point, I guess, leading into this upcoming legislative session to request these agencies specifically come and present that. Could you just kind of clear that up for me a bit since I am a bit new to Mississippi? Well, um, we used to way long ago, I guess before I came uh, five years ago, they would have like two days of hearings. And it was basically, uh, I'm going to refer to it as a dog and pony show. And I I didn't think that that was productive for uh, the agencies or um, the senators and members of the House. So we, we reduced that down to maybe half a dozen or so. That, that, like I said, were either under federal court order or had other issues that we thought needed to be vetted publicly. And that that allowed the members, as if you listen to it, they were very inquisitive on a number of different topics. And it allowed for a much broader one than having every agency have 15 minutes and they tell you how how much they need and how you know how well they're performing and then they leave. I just didn't think that was productive. So we we purposely have gone to a more structured and a more limited group. And as you saw, more questions coming out. How do you think those changes, I guess, to the procedure of that might help things moving forward within the mechanisms of the Mississippi state government? I think we're, we're going to address the ones that uh, rise to the top for consideration. Most of our state agencies are doing well are not under a federal court order. And so I don't know that it's necessary for us to have them spend 15 minutes asking for their budget requests. We'll get those budget requests. They were submitted in August, and we'll get ours uh, from them over this next little bit, you know, before we go into session. We'll make a final determination in December. But a lot of those are performing well, and we're familiar with them from prior years and whatnot, and I don't think necessarily need to come visit Could you speak a little to the nature of the budget surplus that the state of Mississippi has right now? My understanding is that a large portion of it is due to federal funds in recent years. Well, that's not entirely accurate. The budget excess comes from a number of different matters. And uh, first of of course, is the fact that there were significant programs, uh, CARES Act program, ARPA, uh, several different programs that were put out there by the federal government. And of course, those circulate through the economy and the state gets its income tax and sales tax from that. But we started four years ago by cutting our budget by 2%. That is showing effects as well. And then we also reduced taxes, and which y'all don't cover, which I don't really think you ought to be covered, is we paid off over 12% of the state's debt, $500 million. So when that occurs, I don't have to pay interest. Now the interest rates have gone up to 6 or 8% for states and maybe 8 or 10% for regular uh, individuals borrowing or higher. So by us not paying 8%, saves us $40 million a year that we can then devote to infrastructure or teachers or whatever. So I think there's a whole big combination of this, and it's, it's easy to say, oh, it's just federal money. But the legislature cut the budget. We paid down debt. We've done a number of things that cost containment things there. There are less people working for the state than there were four years ago, and that was done by attrition. We just didn't rehire everybody, and I think all of those combined to make the surplus. 
And and one thing just on the topic of there being less state employees than four years ago, I know that the PERS board, when the executive director, Ray Higgins, spoke before y'all, he mentioned that was a bit of a factor leading to some of their concerns about their future viability. So is that maybe a bit of a two-sided coin in this sense? It shouldn't be. If you think about it, the amount of money putting aside for me or for everybody else that's working for the state should be the equivalent of what it takes to pay for their benefit. And so by making that argument, he appears to me to be saying that we need more people to pay for somebody else's benefit. Since, since we're on the topic of PERS, could you maybe speak to how you thought that hearing went? I know that, you know, generally public retirement funds, they're recommended to operate on a funded ratio of 80 percent or greater. <laughs> I think Mr. Higgins said they're operating at 61 percent. Could, mm-hmm. could you just speak to maybe some of the thoughts you had on that hearing? And, you, you know, they have some plans, I guess, moving forward to try and ensure that future viability. What do you think about that? Well, uh- in order, I think, first of all, this is an absolute requirement of the state of Mississippi, and we're going to pay it. That's number one. So then the second thing is, I hope in their judgment, they're, they're on the ground with what's going on there. I hope in their judgment, they will come up with a proposal that will allow us to do that. I haven't seen uh, the actual proposal yet. It was just a verbal statement from Mr. Higgins, but we haven't seen any of the numbers or anything like that. And I think you listen to the House members, they were very interested in getting hard numbers from the board. I mean, just to get the numbers on that, I, uh, I thought the hearing was good to have everybody air their concerns out, and then we'll start from here. But it's an obligation of the state, and I damn well intend to pay it. That's Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, who chairs this year's Joint Legislative Budget Committee. Coming up, the two candidates for Secretary of State shared their plans for office. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. At Mississippi Public Broadcasting, we tell local stories that matter. Educational and entertaining television, radio, news, and podcasts, we have something for everyone. So tune in and enjoy all we have to offer every day. MPB, your stories, our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Democratic and Republican Party candidates for Secretary of State are sharing their policy priorities with the media. Incumbent Republican Michael Watson will face off against Democrat nominee Ty Pinkins in the November general election. Watson says there are three key aspects of the Secretary of State office business services, public lands, and perhaps the largest responsibility, elections. Really proud of the work we've done the last four years. One of the things we saw in 2020 was a very keen focus on the integrity of the process. And so we took apart Mississippi's election laws and said, look, what do we need to do here in our state to make them even better? Uh, Preventing ballot harvesting. As you know, that's in a lawsuit now, so we won't talk much about that, but very important. Strengthening the campaign finance. We've got post-election audits. We've made sure that only United States citizens can vote in our elections. Our Voting Machine Modernization Act. The best thing about that is now, by 2024, all counties have to have a paper verifiable trail. And if they want to access the dollars from the state, those machines cannot connect to the Internet. Again, two important pieces that we've talked about. We got that done. So I don't just talk about election integrity here. I could list several more, but I want you to understand how important it is for us to act. Not just talk, but act. And I think that's an important piece from our leadership in this state. It's not just talk and sound bites are easy. It's when you get in there and you get across the street to the legislature 
and you get things passed in the law to make Mississippi even better. We talk about turnout. Look at 2020, record turnout in 2020. I often hear this, this line about how hard it is to vote in Mississippi. I return back to a quarter of a million new registered voters in the last four years. I also look at 2020 and the record turnout in our state for that election. And I need you to remember something really quickly. COVID was right in our face. In the midst of COVID, in the midst of getting together with our circuit clerks to make a plan because that's how you're supposed to lead, we had record turnout here in Mississippi. That's really important. So you, despite what you may hear from my friends here, sorry, um, it is great time in Mississippi to be a voter here because you have access to registration, you have access through going to the polls. Democrat Ty Pinkins is a military veteran. More recently, he has represented victims of the Rolling Fork tornado during the recovery process. I plan to serve as a guardian to the sanctity of our voter registration process, amplifying every citizen's right to vote, ensuring our voter rolls are untarnished, supervising every state election because this is why it's so important. We want to make sure that every Mississippian feels like their voice is heard, their vote is counted, and they feel appreciated and a sense of pride and value every time they cast a ballot. And through a combination of those efforts, I aspire to serve Mississippians with a determination that mirrors their dreams, their aspirations, and the boundless potential of the Magnolia State. We are literally the state that is known as the birthplace of American music. We are. So this is about nurturing a democracy that's reflective of the vibrant tapestry of voices that are singing out all across Mississippi. Pinkins, who is an attorney, says improving voting rights, fostering economic growth, and working with the legislature are his priorities to move Mississippi forward. From the school teacher to the cafeteria cook to the concerned parent that's singing out for um, better funded schools and higher pay for our teachers. From the nurse to the neurosurgeon to the elderly community member that's singing out for better health care and better pay for our nurses. From the postman to the police officer that's working to make sure that our communities are safer. And from the factory worker up north, out east and down south, to the farm worker in the Mississippi Delta singing out for better paying jobs and a stronger economy. And the Secretary of State's office has a role in that because one of his central duties is working in developing and cultivating relationships with business and industry leaders to ensure that we're working towards fostering an economy where businesses can do a few things, where businesses can grow, they can create jobs, and they can contribute to Mississippi's economy. So I'm running for Secretary of State because I've been all over this state. And Mississippians are ready for Mississippi to lead. The problem is we have the wrong people in some of these offices. We need to replace some of them. When we start looking at the statistics and the data that's factual, that's taking place over the last 15 to 20 years, where our economy is not doing as well as other economies across this country. So that's why I'm running for Secretary of State because I care about this, this state. My entire adult life has been about public service.
in the military, serving our country, our state, and our communities. For several years, Republican incumbent Michael Watson has led an initiative called Tackle the Tape. His goal is to make it easier for businesses to operate in the state. It's our initiative where we are actually cutting regulations here in Mississippi. Uh, last time we had an ORLRC meeting, I made uh, my 100th and subsequently thereafter 106th vote to cut regulations in Mississippi. We then talk about our uh, regulations team that we put together our office, and we're going through all 29 boards and commissions by the year of 2029. And we're looking at each of those regulations and saying, hey, are, are these good regulations or are they bad? Are they good for business or are they bad? Are they discretionary? Do these entities even have the ability to make these laws, these regulations that they're pushing down on our small businesses? So the first three we just finished, we had about 1,700 regulations under those three. That's an average of 600 regulations per entity there, three boards. So if you're one of those individuals who's a cosmetologist or a barber or an architect, you basically got to deal with 600 regulations to get your business off the ground, conduct business, and make money for your family. That's expensive and it's time-consuming. Of those roughly 1,700, we had north of 500 that were discretionary. So we've now got our group together, and we have submitted our list of uh, regulations that we think should be cut through the OLRC. And by the way, that takes working with the legislature. And when you talk about the number of regulations in Mississippi, 118,000 roughly, we're going to be cutting those. Republican incumbent Michael Watson and Democrat Ty Pinkins are candidates for Secretary of State in this year's general election. Coming up, a look back on how the National Endowment of the Arts and Humanities has affected Mississippi over the past 58 years. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio. Whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Gulfport, Fernando, Meridian, Greenville. However you want. Radio. Smart speaker. Smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. family-owned. You know, I respect my dad a lot. I know it wasn't easy when he passed the baton to me, but in the end, he realized it was the best thing for the business to sometimes look at things from different color lenses. Family-owned, a legacy leadership podcast, exploring family businesses who make up the backbone of the American economy. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Fifty-eight years ago, President Lyndon Johnson signed the National Foundation for the Arts and Humanities Act. The program has helped fund hundreds of arts and humanities projects in Mississippi, ranging from special exhibits to documentaries. Our Michael Guidry speaks with Stuart Rockoff, Executive Director of the Mississippi Humanities Council. He talks about how the law continues to shape and preserve history in Mississippi. So we are essentially the state affiliate for for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, the endowment was created in 1965, and there was um, the idea that this federal spending on the arts and humanities needed to be uh, more evenly spread across the country. And so they came up with the idea of creating state councils. So every state has a council. We were established in 1972, and we receive funding uh, from Congress through the National Endowment, and our charge is to support public programs that explore the humanities in Mississippi, roughly our history and culture. 
when I think of like the time, like 1965, during like during World War II, for that the the the, res- the response to the Great Depression and the New Deal, mm-hmm. lots of emphasis on public works. Yeah. Um. It, so it, it is, is was this done in a way to? I mean, this is Johnson kind of following up on FDR's New Deal. Is it a way to kind of? perpetuate that, keep it going um, in, in that spirit? Yeah, you know, I am a historian, so I love this question. So yes, you're right. In the 1930s, during the New Deal, there was government support for artists. Um, some of the remarkable work done by folklorists, they did a huge um, oral history project with formerly enslaved people towards the end of their lives. Just amazingly rich, and it showed the value of some federal investment in this. Um, so that sort of was the preamble, um, sort of, if you will. But you got to think about 1960 right? We're in the midst of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Sputnik is launched in the late 50s, and it creates this panic, and we see this federal spending in the sciences. And in the early 60s, there was a thought, you know, we're not just competing against the Soviets in the science and technology, we're also competing culturally. You know, we believe as a free society that our art, that our humanities are also great, and we need to show that to the world. And so you've got to understand the creation of the endowments in 1965 is also very much a product of its time as well. Um, you know, it was a way of we're spending all this money for science and technology, and that's really important, but we can invest a little bit in our arts and humanities to help support uh, something that really makes America great. And it, it's it's convenient in a way that you mention that because in the 21st century and the tech boom and all of this yeah. other stuff, there has been in some pockets uh, a growing emphasis, again, on tech, on STEM, yeah. on science, engineering, um, and and almost a disregarding of the humanities. Um, are there any congruencies between, like, then and now? And how do you respond to this idea that the humanities are uh, maybe, in, in a way, l- less important than science and math? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, our take is that it's all important. But it's amazing. If you go back to the founding legislation in 1965, and this it stated that our democracy demands wisdom and vision in its citizens. It must therefore foster and support a form of education, the arts and humanities, designed to make people of all backgrounds and wherever located masters of their technology and not its unthinking servants. So in 1965, they're saying, you know, technology is important, but we need to understand its implications. And think about it. In 65, we had very primitive computing, no internet, no AI. But that argument is the same, that we can create a technology like artificial intelligence. And I think we've seen this. They have released it on the world and hadn't really thought through what are the ramifications going to be? How is it going to affect our economy, you know, our society? And so the humanities help us understand that. And so to me, it's not either or. It's not we shouldn't do this. We should do that. We need to have it all. And I think that was the purpose of the creation of the endowments back in the 1960s. And so now uh, with the creation and, and the, the councils on every level, um, yeah. you know, here the Mississippi Humanities Council, Going back to 1972, where where was the focus then, and kind of how has that focus evolved and grown as as we enter, well, as we yeah. get further into the 21st century? Well, obviously, I'm biased. I think the history of the Humane Council is fascinating. But think about it: in 1972 in Mississippi, so we're not long after federally enforced integration. Um, the president of the University of Mississippi, the president of Jackson State University, other leaders of the IHL schools came together at the inspiration of NEH to create the Mississippi. Humanities Council. And so from the earliest days, we 
work to create spaces where people could come together across racial divides and discuss important issues. You know, the early focus of the councils nationally was we are going to bring the humanities to bear on important public policy issues. And it got a little bit weird sometimes. You know, if you talk to some of the early scholars who were involved, there would be like a Euro Welty scholar talking about land use policy. And so, so over time, so if NEH has kind of been a little bit broader in our charge, and we really see ourselves as we support efforts all around the state for, for people and communities to tell their own stories. And so uh, we've evolved over time. Um, we've given grants throughout our time, but we've also do council-conducted programs. And, you know, we are very fortunate in Mississippi because we have a nationally significant history, and we have one of the richest cultural expressions in our state. So for music and literature, I mean, you know, that is truly one of the great things about Mississippi. So we have the great embarrassment of riches of being able to support programs that explore all that legacy. Well, Stuart Rockoff with the Mississippi Humanities Council, thank you so much for taking some time to recognize the anniversary of the National Endowment for the Humanities and the work you do over uh, at the Humanities Council. Thanks so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.